Romans chapter 1 is where I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles, and there are sermon notes this morning to follow along and jot down some things that may be helpful to you. While you're turning there, let me direct your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 13 on the screen. It says this, it is the Lord your God you must follow, and Him you must revere. Keep His commands and obey Him. Serve Him and hold fast to Him. We're talking about marriage this morning, and let me say this, the best thing you could do for your marriage today is to leave and cleave in your relationship with God first before leaving and cleaving to your spouse. This is why we began this series with Fear God. Leave your life of sin and hold fast to God. Do you see the marriage language in here? Serve Him and hold fast to Him. Charles Spurgeon, called the Prince of of Preachers, said this, I looked at Christ and the dove of peace flew into my heart. I looked at the dove and it flew away. In a similar way, if you stare at building a good marriage, it will crumble under the weight of expectation. I believe great marriages are the fruit of couples that are staring at the beauty of Christ. We're in this series called Marriage Reflection because this topic deserves reflection, careful consideration, careful looking at. Marriage reflection also has to do with the idea that marriages are designed by God to reflect something far greater than us. There's a a mystery to it. It's reflecting Jesus and His bride, the church. It's also true that your marriage reflects your deepest beliefs. That is, your theology comes oozing out of your relationship with your spouse, whether you want it to or not. Today's focus is be one. one. Oneness in marriage is God's best. It's for his glory and it's also your rich reward. Like the words I do, oneness is easier to grasp than to become. Super easy to say I do. Difficult to walk and live that out day after day, year after year. Moving from me to we is what makes great marriages and it's also why marriages fail. That process of moving from me to we doesn't happen overnight. Tim Holliday, in a great book on the relationship principles of Jesus, said this, Relationships are painful. Relationships are wonderful. We all live in the drama that plays out between these two truths. I regularly spend time with other people on both sides of this pendulum. And I walk this myself, living in the tension of relationship being painful and wonderful. In premarriage counseling, there's a lot of poking and prodding by my wife, by my wife and I. What we are trying to do is to get lovesick people to brace for the journey ahead of them. In post-marriage counseling, especially pre-marriage dissolving counseling, meaning that they just feel like they're at the end of their rope, that involves keeping spouses from poking and prodding one another and trying to get sick of love people to continue in the journey. Huge difference to do pre-marriage counseling and post-marriage counseling. So what happens that two become one flesh and then begin to move back toward being two again? I want to say up front that many of you in this room are not married. Some of you aspire to marriage. Some of you have been married. Uh, some of you are widowed. And let me just say, this marriage series, this seven weeks, we're three weeks into it, I think. Yes, three weeks into it. Um, will be beneficial for a number of reasons, even if you aren't in the sweet spot target. I am thrilled, and I say this regularly to the glory of God, that we have so many different generations represented at this church. Some of the things that will be shared today may not be for you personally, but you older women, as you counsel younger women, you're going to be stirred and reminded of some of the scriptures that are there. Some of you older men that are going to instruct and teach younger men, um, you'll, you'll have the same For those of you who are married, it's just who I'll be talking to most of the morning, your marriage is moving in one of two directions. It is moving right now toward oneness, or it is moving right now toward isolation. And we vacillate back and forth in that. Isn't that true? 
that there's sort of a continuum there and we're moving in one of two directions. Here's a little hint for you. If you think you are static and staying still, you are drifting toward isolation. Just like becoming fit physically or becoming fit spiritually, which is holiness, no one drifts into being fit physically. No one. I've prayed for that. Trust me, that's, that's a no from God. No one drifts into holiness. We drift toward isolation in our marriages. We do not drift toward oneness. I want to start this morning to say this, that there is hope for every marriage here today. Those marriages on life support, those marriages on autopilot, those marriages that are currently being dreamed of one day, and those marriages that today, right now, feel like a nightmare. Here's why I can say this. Great marriages aren't found or fallen into. They are built. And you are not alone if you are seeking to build a great marriage. And by great, I don't mean poster child. I just mean walking the path God's laid out for us. And here's the kicker. God is with you. You're not alone in this. One of the most devastating things about building a marriage is feeling alone, meaning your spouse isn't working with you on this. You are not alone in building a marriage that honors God. God's with you. Psalm 127. I told you to turn to Romans 1. Stay there. Psalm 127. If you're a family man, you ought to memorize this psalm. I had it memorized, but I don't trust myself. This is the family man's psalm, if there ever was one. And it says this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Discovering, creating, and cultivating is in our DNA. Civilizations, government, businesses, a physical house, or a family, it's built in us to want to build great things. Sweat of brows, straining neurons, and heart palpitations go into getting this right. And God has set out a well-lit path and made clear some simple declarations. Here's what he says. There is life and blessing for those who would walk according to, to my way, those who would disregard my instruction, those who would disregard my warning. There is death and cursing that follows. Blessing or curse. Marriage is a hike and God gives us the path to walk. Let me give you a simple formula that you don't need to memorize, but it will illustrate something. Yosemite's Mist Trail, plus two four-year-olds, plus one seven-year-old, plus one eight-year-old, plus two very capable teenagers, plus summer crowds, equals Cranky Dad. Um, so let me explain. We were at Yosemite last week. And while other trails uh, left dad carefree and happy hiking along um, and very, very few instructions, um, they were wide dirt roads. There was one simple instruction, follow me, just walk. That was pretty much it. And there was very few rules outside of that. The reason was these other trails, there was very little at stake. As we sat at the bottom of the bridge, many of you have been there, Avernal Falls. We were about to embark on a treacherous journey that I've been up many, many, many times. And on this particular part of the trail, uh, referred to as the Mist Trail, it is narrow, it is crowded, it's steep, it's uneven. And if you look to your left on the way up, you see a glorious slide to your death. That's what the Mist Trail is all about. Now... Dad was cranky, but dad was really clear. Single file, no passing, no cartwheels, 
no chasing butterflies, none of that. And there were no exceptions to this. If you messed up once, we were done. Like you were going to turn around and go back down the hill with that. I used to be really fun to hike with uh, in the first couple kids, but um, ER bills have added up and I've grown in wisdom and I'm not very fun to hike with on the mystery anymore. Now, I want you to not miss this point. I want you to understand that God appears cranky with lots of rules surrounding our sexuality. Where I really was cranky because I was operating from fear and control that day and I felt the weight of that, God is not. Out of perfect love, God guides us on the path of thrilling, abundant life. And he provides not only a clearly marked trail, but clear warnings of what we need to steer clear of and what we need to stay on. And to our own peril or our own great delight, we heed that or ignore that. Relationships, and specifically sexuality within relationships, carries the the power of life and death. I think you would agree in here that failure in marriage is altogether different than failure in any other area that I just mentioned earlier building a business, building a home, building a civilization. 1 Corinthians 6.18 highlights how sexual sin is in a league of its own. It says this, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, what constitutes sexual immorality is made plain to us in the scriptures. Before proclaiming God's word on this matter, I want to reflect with you how something that is good has been perverted in this arena. We looked earlier in the series that marriage is a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, But we'd all agree that the survival rate of marriages worldwide is abysmal. No one wants their marriage to fail. Everyone thinks it's important to work on their marriage. Why do so few survive? There is cultural confusion that is going on. Many in our culture view sex as God or as gross. And oddly, if you study history, the ancients that went before us seem to vacillate to one of these two extremes as well. Either sex was thought of as a total free-for-all and this, the body didn't matter and so you just did whatever you want. In fact, notice how spiritual sexuality is. Our scriptures are filled with pagan worship that involves sexual promiscuity. Or we also read total abstinence motivated by God uh, by, by sex as gross. Sex is bad. So it becomes completely functional and nothing else. When I bring up that sex is God, it's not hard to see as you look around our culture. Porn addiction, the sex industry, massage parlors, prostitution, child trafficking, these are all sort of the obvious wicked indicators that are the, that are the front headlines of it. But if you look a little bit deeper, you, you look at some other things. Some of you are old enough in this room to instruct those of us who weren't around for this, but yesterday's pornography and perverts are today's pop culture. As a parent, I'm shocked by that because I've seen that in my lifetime, and I can only imagine what it's going to be like when my youngest is an adult with children. Movies and TV and music videos and pranks and college initiations and increasingly depraved magazine covers that sit in front of our grocery stores. Sex is a God that never satisfies and worshiping at the altar because it feels good has far-reaching generational effect on families and we're seeing the, the results of that. Sex God shows up in laws and entertainment. From divorce to abortion to marriage to parental consent on all manner of sexual issues, individual sexual preference is king. That's what we're saying is most important and has the rights. So what has a no-shame culture produced? 
Are shame and guilt absent from our culture? Are they absent from your life? Shame-free culture has produced and given rise to hopelessness and frustration and resentment and bitterness and violence and isolation. The gift of sexual intercourse and our own sexual sexuality has been trampled on. That's sex as God. The other way people get it wrong is sex is gross. Sex is gross is often born out of a stingy or utilitarian view of sex, often religiously motivated. Some couples come into pre-marriage counseling and we get into this because this is a massive part of how God designed us and they can hardly sit still and hear it, even with warning. They may have been raised in a religiously motivated home that just never would, would, would broach this subject at all in a million years. This is unbiblical and it misrepresents the generous character of God who gives it to us. Sex is gross also stems from those who have been sinned against sexually. This is the person who just feels that everything below the neck is gross and dirty. And there's deep damage that happens when this goes on. If you are squirming right now because this is you, let me pause and say this. Feelings of guilt and feelings of shame often accompany victims in any kind of sexual sin. So if you are squirming in in here because that is you, you need to hear a couple of things. Number one is that God's heart weeps for victims of sexual abuse. Secondly, I want you to know that as protective father, God's wrath is coming upon those who commit such atrocities and don't repent. So if, on the other hand, you're not the victim, you're the perpetrator, today is the call of repentance. Today is the day that says the protective father that finds this repulsive and wicked and disgusting is coming after you. I beg of you to repent. Incest, fondling, groping, rape, and I'll stop there, but the list could go on is wicked and repulsive in the eyes of a holy father. The current poster child for this, by the way, is Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein's mentality could be this. Look, I was born this way. I have appetites and urges. I've just chosen not to say no to any of them. I've decided none of them are wrong. And due to finance and due to power, he was allowed to continue day after day, week after week in his sin. God didn't stop seeing it, but there came a day when God exposed it. And there's coming a day, sooner or later, when your sin will be exposed as well. If you are a victim, get with God and let him speak. I can't tell you anything more than that as more important. Outside of that, Find a trusted Christian friend. There's help and healing and wholeness that's available, but you will need to work through this. Many of you may need professional counseling to work through these issues. I haven't done any research in our local church body. I haven't had time to go do this outside of this. But I would suspect many marriages are fighting an unseen enemy because of past sins committed in the marriage. Not by the people, but maybe history that that came into marriage. And it has been processed or healed from. What is seen in our day is really predictable because it happens regularly, and Romans 1 nails this perfectly. I'll put it on the screen, but I hope you're there. If not, just follow along. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. 
and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. There's the sex God part. Who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Skip down to verse 34. Paul writes, They are foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Please don't hear hate in my voice. Hear me as a messenger proclaiming the news that God has put in writing because it was so important. I pray this morning is about carefully considering, reflecting on the fruit of your life and the fruit of those around you, potentially those around you that you're looking up to and idolizing. Many people reject a biblical position they've never even tried or even listened to. Apart from God, we are utterly confused. Under God, we are shown the path of life. Now, let me make a bold statement. I want to be completely clear regarding some things about sexuality. I don't propose to say that I'm going to clear up everything with that. There are all kinds of gray areas that God doesn't speak to. What I would say about those areas is that those are up for godly debate between family members. But there are some things that are crystal clear, and I hope that this morning will stir up good discussion around this. Last week, Kel took us to the very beginning, and as one pastor said, he said, God invites our, our, our first parents to make some babies, steward creation, rule over lower life, and make a culture that reflected his glory and our good. In that same garden, God gifted sex, which is for our good pleasure. It's for the making of babies. It's for the bonding of spouses, and it's to reflect the God we serve. Let me quickly go over six things that we learn from the Genesis account. If you want to jot these down, fine. If you want to go read it and drop your own conclusions, that's fine. Here's number one, that God created male and female. Together, male and female reflect the image of God. They are different and complementing of one another. Secondly, that marriage is one man plus one woman for life. This is modeled by Jesus and the church for life. One plus one for eternity. And it's taught explicitly by Jesus in the New Testament, as we'll see later. Number three is that God created sex. Husband and wife were naked and unashamed in the presence of God. The reason that it is so incredibly pleasurable, by the way, is by God's good design. In a case of biology, catching up with theology, we now understand the specific body parts that are created by God that have no other function than pleasure during sexual intercourse. God is good. Number four, sex outside of marriage is sin. This includes adultery. That would be sex with someone other than your partner if you are married. Fornication, which is the equivalent of going in and stealing a gift that God's going to give you someday freely and legally, and you go and steal it ahead of time. You're not married, and yet you're having sexual intercourse. Homosexuality, which is same-sex relations. Bestiality, which is sexual acts with an animal. Rape, polygamy, incest. These are things clearly called out in the scriptures. By the way, if you listen out loud with your family to the scriptures, you will get to some chapters in the Old Testament where you go, huh, maybe we'll pause this. Not that our kids don't need to hear this, but we're going to discuss this a little bit more in depth. You'll just get to some parts where it's naming these things. On top of that, pornography, lustful thoughts, hooking up, these are all sin. 
Aside from explicitly naming things, the Bible repeatedly names sexual immorality as a sin. Sexual immorality is like a junk drawer of saying, and that includes all other manner of wicked depravity sexually that your human heart will come up with. Just the fact that we need to name and call these things out indicates something. It indicates that our culture isn't nearly as far as some cultures in the Old Testament got to before they were destroyed. It falls in on itself. Read your history books. It also shows the effects of the fall and how far the curse goes that we would name these things that you think, should we be saying this out loud in church? Of course we should. It's in your Bible. So these are the things that are out of bounds. Number five, sex is to be done in such a way that there is no shame. Sex is a gift to be enjoyed and stewarded as one of many gifts that God gives us. Now listen carefully. If you are unable to regard physical intimacy in this way, consider your past, which may be holding you in bondage. And or... Renew your mind with biblical teaching and ask God to heal your sexuality. Someone has said the biggest sex organ in the body is the brain. It's the way we think about these things. We know from scripture, we have to have our mind renewed by all manner of life. Every single day, a rewashing of it. Why wouldn't that include our sexuality? Let me say this to those of you who are spouses of those who are deeply broken sexually. Love is patient. If you are a spouse of someone who is deeply hurt sexually, act patiently toward that spouse. Instead of being an instrument for more guilt and shame heaped upon that person, be an instrument of healing. Be a person that God can use in that person's life. There's, there's no other more important person in the sexual healing of your spouse than you. This will require you holding fast to God and leaving your life of sin over and over and over. Number six may be the most important, and that is this. Your standard of beauty is your spouse. Your standard of beauty is your spouse. Let me go back to the garden for a minute. God didn't bring a lineup of women to Adam and let him pick. What God did is he gifted a spouse to Adam. And you know what Adam did? He rejoiced. He said, thank you. And he acted like he meant it because they made babies. Your standard of beauty is your spouse. If you are married, your spouse is what you are into. If your spout is short, you like short. If your spouse is 20, you like 20. When she turns 40, you're into 40. Gals, if your guy is tall and thin, you like tall and thin. Pornography is one of the most devastating things. We've never seen anything like this in human history. But it perpetuates the lie that your happiness lies in you sort of tailoring things to your sexual preferences. It's at its core. It's just fundamentally selfish. And again, the effects of it, whether you are an atheist or a committed believer, is undeniable. Here's the key truth that I want you to write down this morning. If you are married... You are no longer two individuals, but you are part of a newly created one. And this shapes and informs every aspect of your life. Oneness is the goal in marriage. And while I'm going to talk a lot about sexual intimacy, because there is a unique bond that happens uh, with this, it extends well beyond the bedroom. So not only one house, not only one family, not only one bank account, but your soul and spirit. Oneness is the goal in marriage and moving toward that and building toward that is the key. Those of you who've been married a while, like myself, you know, this takes a while. This takes years and years. And then something happens and things change and you have to rebuild areas where relationship hurricane Katrina came through and destroyed some things you thought were built up before. 
Oneness is the goal of marriage. Turn over in your Bible to Mark 10, and this is really our passage for this morning. It's Jesus on marriage. Mark 10, chapter, uh, verse 2, says this. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Still a question that sits in front of us today. He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, notice where he goes with his teaching. Why did we start in the garden? That's where Jesus starts. Notice from the beginning, or but from the beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The way Jesus answers this is he goes back and he points to God's best for marriage. He's not shy about saying, this is God's best. This is what I hold up to you as the standard. That's how we've been trying to teach this series. Are there all kinds of stipulations? Are there all kinds of side things? Absolutely. But God just holds up, says, this is the standard. Strive for this. Don't settle for different things. Don't change things because of what you have gone through. He lays out a threefold process. Leave your parents, hold fast to your wife, become one flesh. How opposite is this from our hookup and move on culture that we live in? He brings God front and center as the, cre- as, the, as the creator of this new couple. What God has joined together. And then he commands quite clearly that we not separate through divorce. God is not a cranky dad on the mistrail. <laughs> God is in control. He's a loving father. Everything that he has laid out so specifically, the reason there is so chock full instruction on sexuality is because life or death is at stake. God doesn't just give the path to walk it. He also offers the power to continue the hike. Here's a key verse I want you to, well, it's already in your notes, I believe, but Ephesians 5.1 says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Married people, listen carefully. You can love because your deep need to be loved has been met. You can love your spouse because your deep need to be loved has already been met. As dearly loved children, be imitators of God. If you miss that you are the beloved already, you know who gets the the brunt of that? Your spouse, every time. This verse is a game changer for a variety of of, of reasons. People have traded the truth of this verse for a lie. Here's the lie. Your greatest need is to be loved. People believe their greatest need is to be loved, so they go on a search, they get married, and then they berate their spouse or they silently pull away from their spouse because that person doesn't love them like they need to be loved. By design, they will never love you the way you need to be loved. So you love because you've first been loved. Think about this. So, so if, here, here's, the, here's the truth of it. The truth of it is that your greatest need isn't to be loved. That's already been met in God. Your greatest need is to learn to love. So be imitators of God as beloved children. You being loved is already a settled matter. And then it goes on to say, therefore, um, someone have it? I lost my notes. It goes on to say, walk in love. Gosh, it's gone. There it is. It's on the screen. Uh, so so your, your greatest need is to be loved. That, that's already met. And walk in love. 
as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So your greatest need is to learn to love. Do you notice the Bible does not repeatedly tell us to breathe? The Bible never repeatedly commands us to eat. It doesn't say those things. Why? Those things come naturally to us. What does the Bible repeatedly tell us to do? Love one another. Love like Jesus. Be a giver. And then in case we define love the way we want to define it, God's laid out some pretty clear parameters on what true love looks like. This is a game changer. Now I can set... Uh, out on the pursuit of being a giver like Jesus, learn to imitate the love shown to me as the beloved. No longer do I keep that expectation on my spouse. No longer do I keep score. No longer do I fear that if I give too much love and get nothing in return, I'll run out somehow. You won't outlove God so you can walk in love. You can look this up later, but the very next verse of where our key verse goes into is into sexual issues and marriage relational issues. Listen carefully in verse 3. Right after saying that we're to walk in love and do it as Christ did, he says this, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, or who is covetous that is idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. What is the key practice? The key practice is sex freely and frequently with your spouse. Consider this reality, husbands and wives. The only legitimate fulfilling of sexual desire in your husband or your wife is you. Make that a great option. Don't deprive. We're to give like Jesus, our key verse just said. How does, how does God give? God gives generously and sacrificially. Let me show you a verse that's written down the reference is written down so you can read the context more later. But he says this, Paul in 1 Corinthians, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over her own body, over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Let me clarify a few things here. Freely means guilt-free, naked and unashamed. This means sex isn't a bargaining chip. It's not done begrudgingly. And if this is hard to do, let me give you some pastoral advice. Practice. If it's hard to do, if it always feels like a chore, dig into that, friends. We just sang a song that said, God, you see every detail of my life. Cry out to God, God, why is this a chore? This is supposed to be a gift. It doesn't feel like a gift. I was invited to talk to a mops group over at Venture a couple of years ago, and um, on the stage were three dads of different ages. One was a guy who was in... I had done his wedding. He had married a kid from my youth group, and I really cared about this kid. I grilled this guy before he started dating. I mean, he already had to get it from dad, and now he got it from the youth pastor, and he was on stage with me and their worship pastor. And we were sort of meeting together a little bit ahead of time and just praying and saying, you know, God, what, what do you want us to share with these ladies who are here? And um, so we had a number of things, but one of the things we came up with after a break was we said, no matter what question gets asked next, we are going to answer it as get naked. And what we wanted to say was this, that like 
these MOPs, Mothers of Preschools, by the way, is what MOPs stands for. You're like, what is a MOPs group? Mothers of Preschools. These women needed to hear from someone other than their own husband that this is really, really important to men. So it produced some humor, because I can't remember what the question was, but the worship pastor there blurted out, just get naked. And everyone kind of erupted and all that. But it drove home the point that this is a huge area, and these women needed to hear it. Freely also means this, that the rest of the relational garden is being tended. If you are feeling heard and cared for, accepted and served, enjoyed and challenged, these all factor into a great time in the bedroom. And don't be deceived, that's not just for women. The stereotype would be, yeah, that's what women think about. Men can somehow compartmentalize this and be okay with all that being in the garbage and still saying, let's, let's get going in the bedroom. But the truth of a long-lasting enjoyment is that these are true of both. So men, if your wife is repulsed by you, I would venture to guess guess that you are not nurturing and cherishing your wife as you've been clearly commanded to in Scripture. Women, if your husband is disinterested in you, something is broken, and I would start with disrespecting attitudes and nagging words. If I could summarize two huge rocks to go after, those are probably the, the, the two areas. Here's where people miss that. Women often go and change their haircut or get something new or something different and miss the the bigger issue. Men can be very, very clueless in this and just go seek it elsewhere. What does frequently mean? Don't squirm in your seat too much. I'm not a sex therapist. We're not going to get into numbers. But here's the bottom line. There's no biblical mention of what frequently is. The passage I just read says, if you're going to stop, stop it for a season for some very spiritual intensity. Like have some intention about that, but then return regularly because you'll be tempted by Satan outside of your marriage vows. Know that oneness is uniquely and chemically achieved during sex. I don't have time to go into it right now, but there are things that go on in a men's brain that happen during and just after intercourse that bonds a a man to that woman totally by God's design. Talk about this as a couple. Some do great at this, some don't. Let me tell you how this talk is going to go. Study after study show this. Men think about and want sex more than women. Shocker. Newsflash. So men, let me just brace brace you that women generally will want it less than you. Women, probably it's more than you can possibly imagine. So as you talk this through, as you think this through, again, let that be part of the process. I want you to understand there's a protection aspect to this. If you're seeking to walk the path of purity as a Christian, no matter your age, you are in for a daily battle. Is this true? Of course it is. The battle for purity happens every single day. In fact, I wouldn't lump it in days. I would put it in terms of hours. So if that's true, come together regularly. If you think your spouse is tempted, and men and women generally get tempted for different reasons to be unfaithful, both commit adultery. But if you think that they get tempted once a month, and so that's your answer is to engage in sexual intercourse once a month, you have another thing coming. Another protection that isn't talked about a lot in the media because it's not even really left as an option is this. Marriage protects against STDs in a powerful way. So think about this. A man or a woman can engage in sexual activity 10,000 times and not be at risk of any kind of STD kept in, in the bonds of marriage. There are whole swaths of things that are not dangerous for a couple that is just walking the path that God has laid out for them. Another word on this, that life stages and circumstances disrupt and change patterns. If illness has overtaken your spouse's body, guess what? The sex drive and normal sexual things change. Those of you without babies, when babies start coming, all of a sudden, and this is shocking for most men, sleep becomes a priority over some kind of sexual encounter. And there can be hurt and misunderstanding and all kinds of derailment here if you don't just keep the lifeblood of communication going. 
Next week is all about serving your spouse in marriage, putting their needs above your own. Let me just say this. Get married to a godly person, focus on becoming a godly person, and figure it out within the vows of marriage. Guys, if you're quoting First, First Corinthians 7 in the bedroom, this is horribly unromantic and will blow up in your face. Do the dishes instead. Do something that serves your wife and let that be uh, something that might change. Let me give you some resources to help. The Song of Solomon is a book of the Bible that sits kind of right in the middle of the Scriptures and has caused much concern for Christians throughout the centuries. Go home and read the Song of Solomon out loud with your spouse. There is explicit language and love songs going back and forth. It gives all kinds of wonderful pictures. There's a book called The Mingling of Souls by Matt Chandler that kind of dives into the Song of Solomon. Excellent book. A second book I would mention is The Five Love Languages, which about a million or seven million have heard of already. And what it does is it opens up your mind to say, wow, maybe there are different things that stir up feelings of warmth and affection and bondedness in my spouse that don't even begin to register on my radar. The Proverbs is an amazing book and has tons of marital advice. I put up Psalm, uh, Proverbs 5 to show you a couple of things. One is to hear some clear, well-lit path warning that's laid out. Secondly, just to hear how blunt the Bible talks about this. We live in a blunt culture. There's not a whole lot that's off limits to just talk about. The Bible's been there all along. Drink water from your own well, it says. Proverbs 5. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets, having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife become a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an immoral woman or fondle the breasts of a promiscuous woman? For the Lord sees clearly what a man does, examining every path he takes. An evil man is held captive by his own sins. They are ropes that catch and hold him. He will die for lack of self-control. He will be lost because of his great foolishness. If you're the fool in Proverbs 5, repent! Don't keep acting out on the mistrail. There's life and death at stale. Get back on the, tra- on, on the trail. If you are that promiscuous woman, repent. If you are in danger of heading this direction, all sin starts in the mind. So if we fantasize about this, if we're starting to sort of think this way, if we're starting to entertain things, repent while there is hope. I cannot begin to tell you, in all my years of being a pastor, There is no phone call, there is no sound like the voice on the other end of a phone of a man or woman who is losing their family due to sexual sin. There there is nothing like it. The sounds that come out of that person's mouth are from a place that backs up that sexual sin is in a league of its own. We've said all along we want to offer young people here, how do you start well with this? Dave, I don't want to go down those paths. I don't want to do these things. Here is some tips for starting well. With so much emphasis on romance and physical expressions of love, whether that be in songs or screens or stories, is it any wonder that the focus is all off? I would challenge young people, consider the fruit. Consider what you see. What is the result of that? What is the real life result of people who celebrate the physical? It's not working because nothing is lasting. The sad reality of many young people is they change their dream to match their current circumstance. I've dated deadbeat guy after deadbeat guy. I guess I'll settle for a deadbeat guy 
Let me get the best deadbeat guy I can get. Hold on to the God-given desire to have a love that lasts for a lifetime. So guys, this is... I could just as easily say guys or gals on either one of these, but let me stereotype. Guys, go beyond skin deep. I can't tell you how many times I read Proverbs 31 in high school. Praying and saying, God, keep my eyes on this. This is what I want. This is what I want. I also want these other things. Help me to kill that. This is what I want. Proverbs 31, 26 says this, describing a godly woman. She opens her mouth with wisdom and teachings of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also. And he praises her. We have some uh, just amazing marriages. I plead with you, if you're a young woman, talk to an older woman. If you're a young man, talk to an older man. There are no perfect marriages allowed in this church because they don't exist. (laughs) But I can't begin to tell you what it is to have a woman that you trust implicitly at your side. Gals, go beyond feelings. Look for a guy who lives and loves like Jesus. Hear me, you will not change him magically after marriage. That just doesn't happen. Things get harder. Sinner married to sinner complicates things. Find someone who lives and loves like Jesus. Both guys and gals live joyfully in bounds for sex as a single You are setting up a pattern right now for living joyfully in bounds in marriage by how you carry yourself in your singleness. You will not be disappointed. Because you've messed up sexually, not if, because you've messed up sexually, all of us need to confess, repent, and receive God's cleansing and forgiveness and walk as children of the light. That's what we do. That's what Christians do with sin. We don't excuse it. We don't belittle it. We don't shift the blame somewhere else. We have it drug into the light. We repent of it. We receive God's forgiveness. We receive God's cleansing. And we walk in the light. I promise you that weekly date night is not what's going to guard the intimacy of your marriage. Steady vacations, that doesn't guard intimacy in your marriage. It's as simple as the Holy Spirit residing in you. It's as simple as Bible study and application. It's as simple as prayer and crying out to God. Unlike much of the world will tell you, your sex life is not a thermostat, which if you only turn up things in the bedroom, all the rest of your relationship will will follow. It's instead the opposite of that. It's a thermometer just indicating what's already there. Close your eyes and listen to these three verses in Psalms. Psalm 34, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Amen.